So, um, and thank you for the opportunity to give a Dharma talk. It's it's always a little bit intimidating because I don't necessarily feel like I have a lot to say. Um, but it also pushes me to try to coalesce some of the inner thoughts that are uh, kind of roiling around at times. Um, so I was, uh, I was kind of inspired by Max talking about the Diamond Sutra a few weeks ago, um, particularly because I think it has a lot to offer in terms of thinking about uncertainty in our lives and... Um, and I think that's actually something that is pretty topical for a number of us, the sense of, you know, what, what do I do with my life next? Where is this going? How do I hold the multiple possibilities of what I could do um, without suffering immensely from those uh, alternatives and, and the uncertainties that come with them? I think I, I shared with people a few weeks ago that I... And up for tenure this year, uh, which sort of feels like the the end of you know existential uncertainty, maybe. Uh, and I, I don't have any reason to think the process will go badly in my case, so that's a relief. Um, but at the same time, I was strongly encouraged to apply to other jobs for a couple of reasons. One is maybe it will go badly, and I want to go somewhere else. Uh, or two, that. Um, the benefit of, of getting tenured, at least in terms of salary, tends to be fairly modest if you don't kind of show, show your market value. <laughs> and all these things I find really aversive and, you know, like, well, this is a bunch of nonsense BS. Um, but it's also the, the structure that exists. And so... Um, so some of the ambivalence, or at least uncertainty in my life, has come from that process and opening the door of, am I happy here? Is this a job that is right for me? Uh, is State College the right place? And <laughs> these questions are unanswerable, but you know I, I can mull them around in my mind at length. Um, and this week I heard from one place that is... In, uh, in North Carolina which was basically the one job of the lot that I would consider seriously that they're planning to invite me to interview so now I'm really confused <laughs> like, well the one the, the rest was sort of like academic BS but that one was actually maybe real um, and so there's a quality of oh shit what did I do what, what have I done here um, and, and so I've been kind of looking at some of the text um, around ambiguity and uncertainty and, and the Diamond Sutra just kind of keeps coming up and so I, I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about how I think that um, has some relevance to these questions of uncertainty and I think there's a lot of distinctions here and you know I don't know all of them for myself even but I think there's there are differences between something like ambiguity, which is maybe, I don't really know what this is, I need to look at it, get some more information about it. Uncertainty, which is, I kind of think I might know what this is, but I don't know if it's good or bad. Should I move toward it, move away from it? Um, and there's fairly t substantial literature in um, 
in behavioral economics that on average people are risk averse, um, with exceptions. But on average, we we tend to avoid uncertainty as, as people. And another distinction might be ambivalence in the truest sense. Maybe that it's, you're truly at equipoise between two things. You're being pulled by different valences, and you have an, an equal weighting on those. But there's probably a variant of that that is closer to doubt. Like, well, it's not, I'm not truly ambivalent. I'm sort of leaning toward, let's say, staying in state college. But there's a part of me that doubts whether that's right. Maybe I should be going over here and thinking about, you know, maybe I should move to Canada, um, which is a possibility. <laughs> so, so there are a lot of distinctions in, in this space, and I, I guess I wanted to start by highlighting a distinction that um, at least I find helpful, which is the idea of homeostasis, um, that we as creatures have evolved to have many, many regulatory processes that we have no idea about, honestly, how they work. If we study these as scientists, maybe we figure some of it out. But you you don't have to understand how the vagus nerve works to experience a spike of cortisol when you're anxious and then to notice that go away as you regulate. That is outside of your need to understand how it works, and yet we do have all these regulatory processes that keep us alive. We get too cold, we shiver. We get too hot, we sweat. Um, So in a very deep way, our, our bodies have evolved to keep the system on the rails, to have as little fluctuation as possible. And fluctuation in body temperature of even a few degrees can be lethal. And so this is pretty costly to us. We, we work pretty hard to maintain our homeostasis. Um, and from a certain point of view, even life itself is a violation of the tendency of matter to go from higher energy states to lower energy states. So like in, in MRI imaging, magnetic resonance imaging, something that I spend time at work on, um, the way we actually get images of the brain is we inject energy into hydrogen atoms and they go into a higher energy state. And then as soon as we turn off the energy, the pulse of energy, they go, oh, thanks. So there's this tendency on average of matter to revert to a lower energy state, something called entropy. Um, and life itself is basically a violation of entropy. It's a sort of an example of negentropy, working against the tendency to go uh, to lower energy states. Now, eventually, it all catches up with us. You know, we do age, we do die, our bodies do decompose. Um, but while we're alive, we work awfully hard for that not to happen. We, we try to keep energy uh, entropy from kind of overtaking us. Um, and yet, I think, in a deep way, the, the teachings, including the Diamond Sutra, but a number of others, lead one to wonder, does that really work inside the flesh, if you will? And in my mental continuum, should I be going for homeostasis? Should I be trying to keep things on the level? Um, and there's something about that that's very appealing. Like, who doesn't want to have a stable life? You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs suggests that we work awfully hard to just have shelter and food and belonging. Maybe we'll eventually get to self-actualization, maybe not. Um, but that 
seems very appealing, this idea that we could have a stable mental continuum, predictable circumstances. And when you see countries in crisis, when you see people at war, it's very clear that at the extreme, unpredictability is very scary, it's very costly. Um, and so it's a, it's a privilege for us that I think we can, in Buddhist practice, uh, particularly in a, a stable kind of setting on the whole, um, start to question that and say, is this stability of mental continuum something that we should be pursuing? Is that actually moving us toward, I don't know, enlightenment or at least uh, joy, meaning, fulfillment? And I guess the, the thesis or kind of where I'm going is it's questionable. You know, I actually, the story of my getting back into Buddhism, I was interested in it in high school and early college, and then was sort of very sporadic about it for about nine years. Um, but the story of my getting back into it was, as a, as a postdoc, I hadn't really encountered a circumstance that was so, I don't know if stressful is quite the right, right word, but maybe, um, that required so much of me. I had two kids under the age of three. Um, we had just moved to Pittsburgh a couple of years prior. You know, I had to finish my dissertation. I was doing hundreds of hours of clinical work. Um, and I just, it always felt like one thing after the next, you know, oh, now I have to do that, okay, okay. And I ended up feeling um, like, well, once that is done, once that paper is submitted, then, oh, then I'll finally be able to breathe. And, once that grants done, okay, oh, fine. But um, that was really deceiving. It didn't actually work out for me. It was, uh, it was quite unsatisfying that I, time and again, would develop this kind of endurance mentality. I'm just going to get through this. The next six weeks is going to be terrible, but then once I hit November, life will be great. Um, and that turned out to be just completely untrue of my lived experience. Now, of course, there were ebbs and flows. It's not like it was all crazy all the time. Um, but what it led to was a real sense of, uh, or a real lack of presence in those endurance states of mind. I wasn't actually there for a lot of it. I was just sort of, you know, banging it out and, um, and waiting for it to be over. And so the, that accumulation of feeling like, you know, this is not really working, led me toward back toward practice, um, where I think there is a real value on being uncertain and present. Um, so this, in, in my reading of text, uh, sorry, I accidentally printed this in like eight-point font, so <laughs> I might have to hold it up to my eyes a little closer. Um, I think it's really striking that the Buddha spends a lot of time in various sutras talking about what things are not, um, as well as perhaps what they are. So there's often this quality of asserting the positive and asserting the not positive. Um, so, for example, he uses the word amata to talk about something that is deathless. I guess, no, maybe not the original word, but the Sanskrit word amata, uh, rather than saying something like eternal life. Or he'll, uh, translations are often things like unborn, unproduced, unconditioned. 
And um, in a pretty interesting Dharma talk from Kurt Spellmeyer, he points out that there's a, a very frequently quoted phrase, even outside of Buddhism, that people say, the Buddha said, hatred is never appeased by hatred in this world. By love alone is hatred appeased. But what Spellmeyer points out is that the word that uh, is in the original text for love is not metta, which is the same word we would use for loving kindness, but avarena, which means non-hatred. So love sounds kind of like, well, I kind of get that, but by non-hatred is hatred appeased is a little bit more confusing. It leaves us with this sense of, what is he really getting at here? Um, In the Diamond Sutra, we get even more of this, and that text was probably written several hundred years later. Um, But there are very interesting quotes in there uh, that Max touched on, and I guess I wanted to come back to. Um, For example, he says, Bhikkhus, you should know that all the teachings I give to you are a raft. All teachings must be abandoned, not to mention non-teachings. And later he says, So Subhuti, all the Bodhisattva Mahasattvas should give rise to a pure and clear intention in this spirit. When they give rise to this intention, they should not rely on forms, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile objects, or objects of mind. They should give rise to an intention with their minds, not dwelling anywhere. (coughs) And then finally, toward the end of the text, uh, there's a phrase, um, all of the fleeting world should be seen as a star at dawn, a bubble in the stream, a flash of lightning in the summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. So throughout that text, what's striking is um, that there's this quality of disorientation, like I'm going to kind of shake, shake up the system. Um, what does he mean to abandon teachings and non-teachings? What's the message? Um, partly the message, I think, um, is a response to even culturally at that time, the, at least one school of thought went down this um, very concrete direction that if you could identify a Buddha through certain signs, like there would be 32 marks of, of the Buddha, um, maybe flat feet uh, with wheel-like indentations on the soles, webbing between the toes, well-retracted genitals. Uh, th- those were thoughts at the time about how one could identify concretely who was a Buddha. And so you can see how perhaps the Diamond Sutra is a pretty strong pushback to that mentality um, that maybe instead of there being particular concrete signs, there's something more about living in this in-between, this uh, what you might call a liminal state. Liminal um, is in the same... uh, It's sort of at the boundary. So like subliminal, we think of as below conscious awareness. Superliminal is you're aware of it consciously. Um, Liminal is also used, and I hesitate to bring it up with an anthropologist in the room, but it's also used to talk about um, when people go through rites of passage, but they're not quite through the rite of passage. So maybe there's a rite of passage to become a man within a Native American tribe, um, 
And maybe you're like halfway through it, like maybe you've done half of it or three quarters of it, but you're not yet recognized as being a man. And so those rites of passage, there are these states that are really in between. You're neither a child nor a man. You're sort of in the process of transitioning through that. Um, Likewise, the liminal state of mind is you're not quite aware of it exactly, but you're not not aware of it. And I think ultimately a lot of what we're hearing and um, reading when we get into the Diamond Sutra and other texts like this is that uh, the Buddha is asked time and again, can you just give us a clear explanation of how enlightenment works? Can you just help me out here? And yet, somehow or the other, he always not only circumnavigates the question, but actually sows a a kind of confusion at times. Um, And you can read that as, well, maybe he's trying to keep it a secret, or there's something opaque here. But I think it's not that. Um, I think it's the idea that the message is in that uncertainty. The message is in that liminal, in-between state. Um, so there's another another um, text, the Udana, this comes from like the, the Pali canon, where somebody asked the Buddha for his account of enlightenment, um, which was kind of, a, again, a common thing that people would do, as you might guess. Uh, and he responds, there exists monks that sphere where there is neither solidity nor cohesion, heat nor motion, nor the spheres of infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, neither this world nor a world beyond, nor both. There, monks, I say, there is no coming nor going, nor maintenance nor falling away, nor arising. That surely is without support, non-functioning, objectless. So again, what does that what does that mean? Um, I think at times it's easy to read texts as information. I'm trying to harvest the information from the words on the page. Um, but there's also a way in which texts are very much about evocation. What do they give rise to in your own experience and your own um, understanding in a, in a more holistic sense? Um, so sometimes a text, I think, is not intended so much to tell you how it works, but to lead you to play with the ideas and hold them in ways that maybe you haven't before. And I think a lot of these <laughs> phrases, you know, nor maintenance, nor fall, no falling away, nor arising, etc. I think that's what um, the Buddha is pointing at, is that there's something there in that liminal state that is if not enlightened, at least is somehow related to it. And I'm still a little bit unsure how that works. He does, though, give us a little bit of a, um, a foothold. Um, <laughs> well, I use that ironically, but he does, um, he does at times talk about the idea of unsupported discernment, um, which is the awareness that accepts everything while clinging to nothing at all. And the Pali term for this, as I understand, is I'll probably say it wrong, but apatita, which means without footing or support. 
This is something that comes back up again later in the uh, sutra called The Crossing Over the Flood, uh, where he's very explicit about this role of this unsupported discernment and helping people reach the other shore. So crossing over the flood is part of that metaphor of crossing to the other shore, achieving enlightenment. Um, and again, this is a, another text where he's responding to the question of, how do I, what, what is enlightenment? How do I become enlightened? Um, and he says, when I, friend, am supported by anything, then I sink down. When I strive, then I am whirled about. Thus, friend, without support, unstriving, I crossed the flood. And this idea of kind of unsupported discernment is really at the root of parts of the Mahayana school or movement, if you will, as well as how Mahayana transitions into Zen, which is where we spend a lot of our time thinking. So that idea of unsupported discernment is very closely related to what we call non-abiding, which is a pretty important construct in Zen that tries to draw our attention to that um, that there's kind of a ceaselessness of being and non-being, doing and non-doing, supporting and non-supporting. Um, and so that idea of non-abiding is that nothing is constant, everything is impermanent, and maybe everything ultimately is empty. But that's hard, um, at least for me, uh, to think that this goal, or I don't know, goal is the right word, but this idea of living in between, um, if you kind of look at, at Buddha's life, um, you know, one of the interesting aspects of it is um, that he ultimately is uh, itinerant. He's ultimately somebody that spends his life journeying around and at times, you know, he'll stay in certain places, but the quality of um, even being geographically mobile is striking. It actually is, in some ways, an exception to the the myth. Uh, like Joseph Campbell talks about the hero's path or the hero's journey, as tending to have this quality, like Odysseus, where you know you go out and fight the Trojan Wars, and there's all of this craziness, and you sort of find yourself, and then there's this very difficult path back home where you have to. You know, avoid the sirens who are going to lead you to your certain doom. Um, but eventually you come back home. I guess in Odysseus's case, you have to clean up some fairly bad <laughs> circumstances and kill a few people. Um, but a lot of these hero stories have that quality of, of coming back home. And the Buddhist story is, is kind of a violation of that. In fact, he, um, although he goes back to the birthplace, uh, his, his own birthplace at times, it's not with this idea of I'm going back to that life, to live with my parents or to see all my friends. Um, instead, he really commits to this, um, this life of sharing teachings, of working for the betterment of all beings, and that that, I don't know if mission is quite the right word, but I'll use it anyway, that kind of mission that he has... Um, leads to an agility of the means by which he might achieve that, or what would be most effective for helping others. It's not tied so much to, I'm going to go do it in my hometown because that's what I like, or 
I'm going to go find a cushy mountain somewhere because it sounds good to me. Um, but instead that there's this agility of purpose, um, or again, the means to achieve that purpose. So, um, I think that's, uh, that's challenging for us. You know, we, we like to occupy certainties. Uh, we like to know how things are going to go. Um, you know, e- even this week I was single parenting. My wife was in Salt Lake City for the week and, you know, certain things just didn't go the way I had hoped that they might. Um, for anything as simple as, you know, I'm trying to get the kids out the door. They have about four minutes to get to the bus, clearing the table, and a, a plate just, you know, Kieran just drops and goes shattering everywhere. And then the dog's trying to get into it, and I'm trying to get her put away and him out the door. And um, in those moments, it's like, <laughs> how, how do I truly just be present to this? And most of the time, the answer is I, I'm not, uh, or at least not fully. It's more of a, like, <gasps> no, let's just get this over with, which again is at that root of that same endurance mentality that I've been struggling with for, you know, pretty much my whole life, but certainly the last 15 years. Um, likewise, there were, I got a, a call from um, the principal this week about one child, and then I got a call from the other child about a meeting he had had with the principal. Uh, and ultimately these are uh, these are transient too you know in, in one case my older son was very upset like he was so upset on the phone that I couldn't even understand what he was trying to communicate he was, just couldn't talk through the tears um, and I, meanwhile I'm like in the basement of our building like working on a very technical problem with an eye tracker and there's like all this equipment I'm hooked up to and I'm like having this conversation with my son about uh, why he's in trouble at school. Um, so even at the same time that there was a lot of uncertainty there, there was also the opportunity for incredible agility. Um, you know, after uh, my son's in the jazz band, and after jazz band, he said, oh, can we go to dinner? Like, just go out to dinner? Uh, I said, Yeah. Let's just do that. Um, you know, I had plan. I had other plans, but it was easy to say yes. Um, and so, I guess you know, those are those are sort of at the level of day to day challenges of life. Um, but I think there's this. Tension, or at least this need for, for both and that even as I see a lot of value in letting uncertainty be as it is, not attaching or avoiding it, um, there's also the need to have some sort of clarity of where is this going? And this, I think, goes back in part to the, the ten perfections, depending on how you count them. Um, for me in particular, the perfection of effort. There's... Uh, at least in, in the Tibetan universe and probably elsewhere, there's this idea of armor-like effort, where your effort is so strong to liberate all beings and to find um, 
a place of liberation for yourself that, you know, when that plate drops on the floor, it's just, it hits your armor and there's still this deep commitment, this deep sense in which um, you can stay in touch with and reaffirm your desire to be in contact with. I am here practicing uh, the perfection of effort in being present and cleaning up the plate. And um, being available to you know my son apologizing for that as opposed to trying to blame him for you know what's wrong with you why did you do that why are you so clumsy all the things that might come to my mind uh, and and they do you know there's a moment at which you have the option to let the arrow through your armor and for me that tends to be switching into expressing those kinds of thoughts the anger frustration. Um, why are you making my life more unpredictable? I just want things to be nice and easy. Uh, so there's there's that opportunity there. And so I think the perfection of effort is one really useful thing to hold on to, even as we can see value in living in the liminal. Um, and the other one, I think, is the idea of the perfection of discriminating awareness, knowing the difference between, you know, am I talking to you about the broken plate from a place of really wanting you to move forward and feel, you know, good about your your life, to have more happiness, or am I doing this so that you don't break plates again? Is it about you? Is it about me? Is is one very simple distinction that I can make at times and. Unfortunately, many times I find it's about me, and it's it's useful to be faced with that, to have that opportunity to practice uh, discriminating awareness. But I find that the perfections are, in some ways, we have to let go of them. They're also part of the raft that we're trying to send down the river, but they at least give a structure to um, to one's life, even as I'm also aware of the value of uh, truly being uncertain about where to go and not trying to foreclose on that prematurely. Thanks.